Canucks Central Monday. It's the beginning of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you'll be uh, following along on that with us. But, of course, your Vancouver Canucks will not be a part of it. We will start to dissect what Bruce Boudreaux had to say today in his season-ending media availability. Still no new contract for Bruce, but does seem like that could be on the way. We'll get into that. Sportshead 650's Canuck Central is brought to you by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Bruce Boudreaux, jovial as ever, Sat. Uh, upset to not be in the playoffs, of course. But uh, he's same old Bruce and... The way I read today's news conference from Bruce Boudreaux was sounded like a guy who expects to be back as the Vancouver Canucks head coach next training camp, despite the fact that uh, there is still uncertainty around his contract. Yeah, and I wouldn't be too stressed about that. And we talked about that a little bit yesterday, too, uh, when we were at Rogers Arena for the players' exit meeting with the media tour once they finish the season. And, you know, we kind of discussed how, yes, nothing's done yet, but the sense is something will get done. And just because it's not necessarily going to be announced today or perhaps, you know, tomorrow or whatever, doesn't mean it's not going to get done. And I wonder if part of the discussion here kind of comes down to that option year. I don't think the issue really is maybe year uh, three and four, the the two-year extension on top of that, maybe what the Vancouver might be offering. I think the sticking point might be, what do we do about next year? Do we go ahead with the number we had agreed? Do we change that number? I wouldn't be surprised if some of the haggling is about that. So once that gets done, I'd expect to see Bruce putting pen to paper pretty soon. Yeah, and uh, we will hear from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin tomorrow, the uh, president and GM, respectively, of your Vancouver Canucks, and uh, expect to have an exclusive with one of them uh, tomorrow on Canuck Central as well. If you missed some of our exclusive interviews with Bo Horvat, Tyler Myers, and Matthew Highmore yesterday during the players' season-ending availability, you can go back and check that on the podcast. Subscribe and leave a review. We do appreciate it. There was a lot to come out from Boudreaux, and you know a lot of it is stuff we've already heard. Sat, you know, he's proud of the culture they started to build over the course of the season. Uh, really started to see the the best of Elias Pettersson. How you know he's handled different situations with the club through the course of the year, but there wasn't a lot new there from from Bruce Boudreaux no it wasn't and the thing I found interesting though was him kind of just diving into the culture a bit more and what he means by that and the thing that stood out to me it always kind of comes down to eventually the players themselves policing themselves within that room setting the standard and holding each other accountable and he kind of talked about how once you start winning and that becomes the expectation And then players start holding each other accountable because, hey, why aren't you doing the things we need to do to have success? Why aren't you doing your job, so to speak, tonight? And then it becomes the players being the ones that set that standard, that hold that accountability with other players and say, hey, listen, this is how we do things here. You can't just expect to not show up tonight or not do this or whatever. And I don't know if this team is there quite yet, but certainly something they're they're 
building towards getting to. And if you get to that stage where the players themselves are going to be the ones that set the standard and hold each other accountable, that's kind of the natural evolution you want to get to. What, what Boudreaux has done is allowed that environment to foster. And that's going to be really, really interesting to see how fast or how long it takes, perhaps, for that to really resonate next season. And I don't know, me, me just reading into it, Sat, uh, you know, the players kind of got sick of what was been what has been going on for over a year with this Canucks team, right? And then the coaching change happens and they go on a win streak right away and you start building off of that. Confidence starts to come back into the room and while there were plenty of speed bumps along the way, you know, uh, at different points, I myself ripping the team for the continued slow starts in games where you were obviously going to need to show up and be prepared for your opponent. You know, that Tampa game rings loudly to me where they show up and they're down a couple of goals in the first couple of minutes and Tampa's just able to shut the game down from there on, even though they were on the second half of a back-to-back and the Canucks were at home. You know, it was those types of things that consistently happened to the team, but they started to iron in that iron it out towards the end of the year. And even despite a lot of those disappointing losses, they did bounce back a lot of the time. Especially the the seven game homestand where it was really disappointing to lose those games to Buffalo, Calgary, and Detroit. But they show up for that game against the Colorado Avalanche and basically have their best game of the season and go on a run that gets them back into the playoff race when it seemed like they just did themselves in with the way they lost those games towards the end of that homestand. It was, you know, it was impressive, but I think that's part of the culture that Bruce spoke of and a lot of the players spoke of on Sunday. Yeah. And, you know, part of me, too, is also kind of wondering a little bit, fool me once. okay, shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me kind of deal, because it's not like this. This hasn't been something this this core hasn't been dealing with. It goes back a couple of years, even going back to the year they went to the bubble. I mean, their maturation really hit that crescendo, so to speak, in the bubble. And they played really well. And that was the best, most, most mature team we had seen. But even throughout ups and downs in that 2019-2020 season. Let's not forget that game against the Penguins. They had the 3-0 lead that melted down. There were a lot of up moments where they had bad starts, and it was kind of a season of runs. They had some really good runs and some really poor runs. And, you know, they looked like they were prepared some nights and not as prepared other nights. Last season, an absolute write-off. This year, well, they kind of figured it out towards the end, but, but one, my hesitation with bringing everybody back or running it back, so to speak, without any core changes being made is – are you not shaking it up enough to make sure that, hey, this is our standard. We're not willing to go back. Yeah, you guys did a lot better this season. We liked how you guys fought and we believe in this core, but we don't believe in every single guy being back. And we still want to hold everybody accountable. We want to raise the bar and raise that standard. And that's my one kind of worry about if you do run it all back with every single one of your core key guys, have they actually learned those lessons or, or, or are we going to see them revert back to what they've done or been for the most part the past few years? So that's really interesting because Boudreaux was asked today about you know, his thoughts on the roster and, and where he could see it going. And one of the things that stuck out to me is 
Bruce Boudreaux thinks this team may not be all that far off from being a player in the Western Conference. Here is Bruce Boudreaux from earlier today. We'll get that clip clip, uh, ready in uh, just a second here. But, you know, Boudreaux did make the point that the team is just a couple of tweaks away. And here is that clip. I think the excitement is is you look at most of the guys are really young and their future is brighter. And I think they ended the year. I was talking this morning. You ended the year not making the playoffs, but it's very rare that you ended the year. You end the year not making the playoffs, but on a, on a very positive note. And I think they'll take that all summer, and they will look to come back and be a different team in training camp and at the beginning than they have been in the past. And uh, um, <clears throat> I think that's going to be the biggest factor is that this summer they're going to come back and they're going to expect to win. And the reason I like it is because the youth of this team is uh, is so uh, so good. If you look at all the great teams, I mean, look at Tampa, for instance. They got the best goalie. They had the best defenseman. And they had some of the best forwards. You look at the Vancouver Canucks. They got a great goalie. They got one of the best defensemen. They got um, three great centermen. Not too many teams have that. And, I mean, with a couple little tweaks here and there, I think this team can be very, very dangerous next year. With a couple of little tweaks here and there, this team could be very, very dangerous next year. That said a lot to me about how Boudreaux feels about this roster do you agree with the Vancouver Canucks head coach? Well, I don't think we should be overly surprised because when he took over, what did he say? I really like this team. I think this is this is a good team. Look at the three centers you can run down, Pedersen, Miller, and Horvat, and and uh, I think this team is underachieved. And then he kind of came in, and you you saw the reality kind of set in a bit. But then towards the end, I, I I buy that he believes this. Now I don't buy that tweaks is necessarily what this team needs if if by tweaks you mean another top four defenseman on the right side another you know play driving forward then yeah i mean if you add a, a legitimate top four defenseman into this fold and if you add another four that can drive play then all of a sudden then you might be a bit closer but the question that 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 kind of poses is how much better are you if you upgrade on Tyler Myers and you add another forward, say, for that third line that can really drive your line for you? Does that put you into a contender status if that's what you do? Or are you still looking to make more big-time additions? He talked about we need more depth, but I'm looking at core pieces. You can fill out depth. You can fill out guys that can play minutes for you and, and help you stay, keep your head above water when you are going through a tough spell. The question, though, is... How much do you improve your core? What I see that you need to do here is you really need one more, at least one more legitimate top four defenseman and another guy up front that drives play. If you do that, well, I do think you're a lot closer, but those two players are pretty significant additions. They're not just, you know, tweak type additions. I I agree with Boudreaux. I do think this team is close. Now, close-ish. The problem always comes back to how do you make those moves? How do you work around the salary cap constraints, the fact that you don't have a lot of trade assets to make those types of moves and upgrade this roster? 
how are you able to do that with those obstacles in your way? That is the biggest question mark. And the very big reality that you may have to take away one of the big pieces because there's uncertainty about their ability to be able to keep this core here long term, as we've talked about so much. Those are not easy obstacles to overcome. But Poudreaux's not wrong, right? Thatcher Demko gives them a floor that not many other teams have. And heck, yes, a a lot of the real contenders maybe don't have outstanding goaltending, but that's an advantage the Vancouver Canucks have over everyone else. Elite goaltending at an elite price. That gives you a decent floor. Beyond that, you do have star players. And we're going to expand on this a little bit more in the next hour of the show, but part of the expectation, as it has seemingly been over the last couple of years, Sat, is about internal improvements, right? Not from the outside. Do you get a full season of Elias Pettersson playing the way he did at the end of the year? Do you get Quinn Hughes taking another step? Does Pod Colson not have a sophomore slump, instead moves ahead? Does Nils Hoaglander return to being a really solid middle six forward that can drive play a little bit, even with his defensive warts? I, like all of those things are pieces and values that this Canucks team has so that a couple of the right moves to this roster could put them in a real good standing here in the Western Conference. Nobody at any point over last offseason said, oh, the Calgary Flames are close, right? Look at them now. They're one of the four favorites over at BCLC to win the Stanley Cup. After an offseason where they made one big free agent signing and then a few tweaks around that, right? It didn't take a lot for that team to really get over the top. Most of it was and is based off of internal improvements. Matthew Kachuk took a step. Johnny Gaudreau returned to being one of the best scorers in the league. Elias Lindholm took a major step. The Canucks have players that you can realistically say can take a step forward and really improve this roster. That is what the Canucks have to bank on and then adding a couple of pieces around the edges that put them around that put them a little bit more into the contender status in the Western Conference. The second half of the season, the more that I've thought about it as it came to a close, we should be more optimistic about where this Canucks team is headed and less pessimistic about you know, how they may have to tear it down in certain parts. The second half of the season proved to me that we were right that this team is on the right trajectory, is on a good trajectory, on the building blocks of Demko Hughes and Elias Patterson. I mean, I don't necessarily dispute those things, but I mean, the thing with Calgary, it's not like Calgary made just minor tweaks. I mean, Blake Coleman signed, what, a five-year, six-year contract worth almost $5 million per season? That was the one big free agent signing, yep. One big free agent signing, but then they also traded for Tyler Toffoli at the deadline. Before the deadline, as a first-round pick, they added to the fold, and that was you know well before the deadline. So 
Then you go out and trade another draft pick to add Tyler Toffoli. You went inside Blake Coleman. You allowed Mark Giordano to leave in the expansion draft, which is fine. But then Oliver Shillington came through and was massive for you. I mean, Shillington, what is was on pace? Is on what had like a forty point season essentially, or that type of scoring pace for a defenseman. So you let go of Giordano and upgraded it as far as speed and pace went, even though he's not as good defensively. But the internal improvement was Rasmus Anderson on the back end taking a massive leap forward, and all of a sudden that defense is a lot more stout but Blake Coleman Tyler Toffoli and the development of a of a young defenseman making 750k becoming a top four defenseman and Oliver Shillington those are you know three significant things that have to go their way so I don't disagree that Vancouver is not that far but you still need to make significant additions it wasn't just like overnight it worked out for Calgary the year before they went and signed Markstrom and they went and signed Chris Tanev and this is you know on the heels a few years after making the big trade of sending Dougie Hamilton to the Carolina Hurricanes. So this is a team that made a number of big moves to get over the top eventually. And a couple things had to happen for them. So for Vancouver, if you want to follow the template that Calgary did, how do you improve on a defenseman? How do you improve on Myers if that's the guy you do? And are you able to add another forward some one way or another? Christopher was asking us, so how much cast base do the Canucks really have here? Well, heading into next season, they'll have about 15 and, a ch- and change, and they have about 16 players signed to contract. So that means once you sign Brock Besser to $6 million, who's RFA, you just have enough money to fill out your roster. Maybe you are able to sign, you know, somebody for two or three million to give you your, your some help in the bottom six or third line or perhaps on the back end. But unless you make a, a bold move or two, it's going to be hard for you to have the space to make those additions. And that's where Vancouver's at. For you to be able to make the moves that Calgary did, how are you subtracting money like Calgary did with the help of the expansion draft to get Giordano out, which allowed him to do other things to make their team better? One other uh, point Boudreaux made in that comment. We have three centers <laughs> that we really like. Um, so, uh, you know, I know there's going to be inevitably a lot of speculation around JT Miller, but uh, it sounds like Bruce Boudreaux, he obviously wants his unknown superstar, JT Miller, to be returning into the fold. And that kind of takes me into my next thought, Sat. So we're going to hear from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin tomorrow. And, you know, there's a lot of things that will be discussed and mainly, you know, uh, there's a want to know how they feel about this roster versus maybe what Boudreaux said. Are they just, do they think it's just a couple of tweaks away? But there is a lot of early priorities that this group has to get working on. And in 32 Thoughts, the podcast, Elliot Friedman mentioned, expect the Canucks to be getting some work done pretty quickly here. Now, we know the main priority right now is getting Bruce Boudreaux finalized. So that is the first order of business on the docket. In terms of prioritizing the Canucks offseason, what would be the next order of business for this team beyond Bruce Boudreaux? Player contracts, and uh, number one on that list seems to be Bo Horvat that they're going to be tackling. And then it kind of once you figure out Bo a little bit, the JT one becomes a bit easier to figure out. And same thing that happens with Brock Besser. So for me, it's those three guys because before you even venture 
into the trade market and start really tearing uh, the roster apart, potentially making certain moves, you got to make sure you take care of your in-house business first. And that's contract talks. And it may not have to be you sign all three guys, but you have to pretty quickly get a good lay of the land. How likely are we to sign each guy? What does the number look like? And what is our budget? And what do we do from this point on? And the next few weeks here is going to be really instrumental in determining the next step. Because once you figure out your house, then you can start talking about what moves you want to make and what changes you want to make. So it does come down to those contracts. And as much as we're talking about Bo being the big one, I don't think the JT discussion is going to drag on much, much longer beyond that either. So those are now like, you know, could be the new league year starts and, and the Canucks announce a, a new contract for, for Bo Horvat. But, you know, technically uh, they aren't allowed to begin negotiations until then. But yes, you have to be able to get a sense of what that number looks like. And if there is the common ground, and I expect there to be that common ground, especially with Bo Horvat on a new deal, that is a huge part of planning the future and planning your future salary cap for this management group. What do those big deals look like? Now, Brock Besser is an interesting one because his offseason, we've talked about it so much, you know, that could be the one that you know you do announce earlier than uh, a Bo Horvat extension or a JT Miller extension. And to get that bit of business done, I think would also be very integral for this team. But you're right, you know, getting these player contracts, having these discussions, ballparking what the future looks like from a salary cap management perspective is huge because then you can plan towards what pieces you can chase after in free agency or in trade and how those may fit into your salary cap future and picture. Now, the other reason I think it's big is because, as we've talked about, if there isn't a common ground on, say, a JT Miller extension, would you not want to know that before the NHL draft? Mm Mm-hmm where is really like the biggest trade season now on the NHL calendar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I'd, you have to make sure you have your plan put in place. So as soon as you get to the draft, that you're ready to move on all those. Like that clarity needs to be there. And you can't, the thing is, you can still play hardball. And what's going to happen at the, at the draft is going to be instructive. So what we might hear is if a deal is not done, that okay – Nothing's done here between JT and Vancouver. Maybe they move him at the draft, and there'll be a lot of rumors and speculation. And ultimately, if he doesn't get moved, then you can probably guess that, yes, I mean, the value maybe wasn't there for them to make that move, but that their priority is still to try to re-sign this player. And they think they can, might be able to bridge that gap, and it comes down to posturing and you know pressure points and creating those sort of things. So I don't think you have to know for sure whether you're signing him you have to understand how likely you are to sign him and if you don't think you're likely to sign him i don't think he can get past the draft and not move him same thing goes for a couple of other guys there because how do you head into next season with that much uncertainty and let's say you have one guy signed but the other guy not signed so once you get to the deadline and you're a playoff team are you going to hold on to him and then lose him as a free agent? Yeah. And if you're not a playoff team, do you trade? Like, so what is your plan? And, and I, don't, I don't see, you know, 
you know, kind of kicking the can down the road and let's see what happens by the deadline to be a good plan. So I'm with you. These next few weeks will more or less determine the future of those two players. Will they be Canucks or not? And you want to get that done and figured out by the draft. Because once you drag into the offseason and everything like that, well, you know, usually good things don't happen unless you really know you're signing the guy. Uh, we'll continue the Canucks conversation. Frank Saravalli is going to join us uh, in a few minutes here on the show. Uh, but right now, playoff hockey is underway. You can bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. And the only game on the go right now is the Bruins and Hurricanes. That game still goalless about midway through the first period. So let's take a look at some of the later starts. The Leafs and Lightning are about to come up here, Sat. And it's a really interesting series. Leafs are a little bit of a favorite here so far. 180 on the money line. And for the series, they are a little bit of a favorite at 180, whereas Tampa Bay is paying out 205. So a little bit of plus money on the defending, two-time defending Stanley Cup champs to run over the Maple Leafs. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I wouldn't say I'm surprised because, you know, it's hard for a team to win three in a row. But, man, um, I, I, I was somewhat, somewhat amused by the number of people ch- picking the Toronto Maple Leafs to win and including you, Dan. Have people not oh. learned their lesson with the Toronto Maple Leafs? Like, yeah. I, I don't understand why, why everybody's all of a sudden so sure <laughs> the Leafs are going to win a round and not just win a round, beat the defending back-to-back Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. So when I look at to win the series at 2.05 for Tampa, and I don't know, I, I, almost seems too good to pass up. Uh, Sat. The the one thing I will say is uh, I don't say I don't think I'm so sure about it, but you know even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. You know, <laughs> yeah, it has a story of the Leafs playoffs, I suppose. <laughs> a couple of quick looks at uh, the game starting later on: St. Louis, Minnesota. Minnesota is also uh, well, they're 160 on the money line to win this series. Uh, I was surprised that they were such a big favorite, but. Uh, I guess I'm not the only one that's really liking what the Minnesota Wild are selling. No, but if you believe in the, in the Blues, that you know, if you look at players and roster strength, that's a solid team. So the win this series at 2.35, that's not bad juice for a team like the Blues. But I think it just goes to when you look at how Minnesota's played all year and you look at the depth they have. And even though the Blues, you know, have you know have had a good season with points and everything, it's not always been pretty and they've been very weird in how they play and we saw that a couple times when the Canucks faced them as well despite the fact that the Blues won those games I see enough holes in the Blues that I I'm kind of with the, the the line on Minnesota but you know I think that's not, that's those are pretty good odds for the Blues as an underdog to win the series if you're looking for a little bit of juice uh maybe you have to go against your own feelings and that's the way I feel about the LA Kings and the Edmonton Oilers like I do think the the Oilers should win this series it's going to be too hard for LA to overcome the amount of injuries that they have but the Oilers are really heavy favorites 143 for the series Kings paying out 285 on the money line i mean you know, sometimes you just plug your nose and hope that the the value is there, or you just say, you know what, I'm not taking this series. You can have either which way of it, but I think Edmonton wins this series. I also think L.A. does have the elements to make it very difficult. 
I just wonder if Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl finally uh, get get it done in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked Edmonton winning this series, but I mean, Edmonton goaltending playoffs—it's just been like vinegar and oil. So <laughs> the, the Leafs of the well, man. Yeah, I, I don't feel very confident about it, but at the same time, like. Kings in the postseason, the defense does worry me a little bit. And goaltending has been fine at times, but also not as good as people make it out to be. Just like, you know, Woodley's talked about when it comes to guys like Jonathan Quick. So I don't know if the goaltending advantage is quite as big as some may believe it is. Stan Richo and Satyar Shah. There is a couple of picks on the upcoming games and series about to start later tonight. We'll go through some of the series that are starting tomorrow later on in the show. Frank Valley is next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central, Dan Richo, and Satyar Shah. Uh, still to come. After 5 o'clock, as uh, previously mentioned... Dive into some of the players uh, who could take a step and have some improvements in their game next year, and we'll start that conversation with one Brock Besser. Uh, but coming up, Frank Saravalli is going to join us, uh, his take on what's going on around the league and what he's hearing on Bruce Boudreaux. It's uh, it's always fun when the playoffs start sat and you start to get a sense of uh, – on just how good some of these teams are and where they can ramp it up to because it's always the funnest part of the first couple of playoff games is just how much faster the game gets. All right. Uh, the game does get incredibly faster when uh, when the playoffs do start. And it's, it's one of those things that... Um, you know, you kind of forget about it every year, and then all of a sudden, uh, the game just like really, really, really starts to to ramp up. Zach. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, and it was funny listening to Boudreaux mention that he's like, I I really don't like watching the first round because you know I just kind of get jealous. But I mean, the first round is usually the most intense round because it just ratchets it up so much, like you mentioned. And then as as the playoffs go on. You know, they kind of hit that little bit of a lull, but then the intensity goes up for the conference again, depending on who plays there. But is there anything quite like the first few games of the playoffs? Nothing. Uh, for me, the first round is always the best round. Uh, yeah. There's games on like all the time, all night long, and generally they are electric. You know, the teams are healthiest at that point. And this year, especially because the Eastern Conference is so loaded, like a lot of those series are pretty much neck and neck. Like, mm -hmm. is there one series in in the Eastern Conference where there's a a really heavy underdog? Like the only one you would say is the Washington Capitals, and they were Cup champs just a few years ago. Yeah, and I mean, I'd only say out west there's a couple because if you look at say, you know. For instance, the LA Kings, how we view them, but they end up playing the Edmonton Oilers, for instance, right? Yeah. And as much as the Dallas Stars are a team that I don't like how they've been playing down the stretch the past 15, 20 games, and I'm not impressed with how they've played. But what did you 
what did you just say about the postseason? Everything changes. Intensity goes up. And that team's really good at limiting scoring chances. They're really good at playing boring hockey. And if they get saves and Miro Heiskin is out there doing his thing and they play good defensively and play a good team game, would you be shocked if they upset Calgary in the first round? Oh. It wouldn't shock me at all. Like, I think we're totally sleeping on that possibility. As much I don't even like Dallas, but yeah. I totally can see an, a, a way for them to win that series. Well, they can muck it up, I guess. Um, yes. And how do you win in the postseason? If you get saves and you muck it up, you get a chance. Uh, let's uh, bring in our next guest. It is uh, Frank Saravalli, Daily Faceoff. Our insider joins us every Monday on the show. What do you think of that take? Uh, does Dallas have a chance against Calgary? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, uh, I can be really direct with you. And I, I appreciate the idea of trying to muck it up and, and get saves. But when I look at the Dallas Stars, in addition to what I think is a really thin forward group, they really have one line. Um, they also just seem emotionally spent. Looking at that team the last few weeks of the regular season, in some ways they were running on fumes. They had worked so hard to get into a playoff spot. And once they were kind of comfortably there, it's almost like they just exhaled and they were like, okay, we're in. And it still came down to the last 48, 72 hours to really nail down the spot. And there were some tense and nervous moments. Now you look at this matchup and I just, I don't see an avenue for the stars really in any position of the game to be in a better spot than Calgary. Well, my only question when it comes to overall this postseason for a team like Calgary is just there's top end guys, for instance. Johnny Goudreau has been tremendous in the regular season. But in the postseason, a lot of their guys have struggled too. And this is a team that's yep. kind of made the playoffs one year, missed the playoffs the other year. And that's my other question with them. I'm still picking Calgary to beat Dallas. We're just talking about, hey, would you be surprised if somebody wins? I wouldn't be surprised if Dallas wins this series. But I do kind of wonder that this is also a big, big moment here for Calgary's core because they haven't shown anything outside of beating Vancouver back in 2015. I actually think, Sat, that the Calgary Flames are the Canadian team facing the most pressure. And no one's really talking about it. I think, you know, you could talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs and their spot. I believe the Leafs got the best matchup possible for taking some of the heat off of their situation. Because no one's, you know, if, if you lose to the two-time defending Stanley Cup champs and you, you have a competitive series, no one's, you know, beating your door down to say, you're, you know, you're no good and your process stinks and your team, like, there's a 115-point team in the regular season, and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see the Toronto Maple Leafs break through this year. And to do it against this Lightning team to slay those demons would be incredible theater. Um, but for that reason and how good Tampa has been for so long, that no one's looking at them saying, oh, they have to win this series. I think, you know, when you take a look at the Edmonton Oilers, Yes, still pressure there. They don't really have anything to show for the Connor McDavid experience seven years in. But when you look at the Calgary Flames and how many years this core has been together, how many summers we've talked about breaking up that core, Johnny Gaudreau in the final year of his deal, Matthew Kachuk pending RFA, they've got some incredibly important decisions to make, and they finally have all of the pieces assembled They've put, gone out and put together a tremendous regular season, one of the top defensive teams in the league. 
They play a 200-foot game. They've been able to score as well as almost anyone. And they're in solid position to do damage. And if they don't now, it's entirely on them. There's no more excuses. And so, um, you know, they've been together longer than this Maple Leaf team has. This Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monaghan, I know Monaghan's injured, but that core, they were in the playoffs before the Leafs even picked Austin Matthews. To think that this group doesn't need to make hay this season, like, I, I mean, I think everyone knows that they do. Well, that the thing about Calgary, uh, which I agree with your point, is as good as Johnny Gaudreau was this year, and I know Brad Treliving has already said he's going to move heaven and earth to get a new deal done. Like, if he flops in this first-round series, how do you give that guy 10 sheets? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's I agree. That's that's a hard, hard thing to do if uh, if Johnny Gaudreau flops in another playoff series. It's, it's true. Like, you can be a 105-point player or a 113-point player, whatever he ended up finishing at, and if you don't have playoff success, you're getting knocked down a few pegs if that becomes your MO. You know, yeah. we've seen play we've seen sort of average or above average players in this league get taken care of financially because they're big time, big moment players when everything's on the line. And, you know, that's been the big knock on Johnny Gaudreau in his career. It's not the reason why he might not, you know, get as much term as some people were wondering, which, you know, before the season, now he will of course, with this unbelievable campaign was, I think there were some question marks about that and not necessarily his size. So the flames could have gone 82 and Oh, Goudreau could have 200 points. If you come out in the playoffs and don't have a lot to show for it, it doesn't matter. And so uh, I think he understands that, but I also think that he's never been quite supported with this line in the way that he has in the past. It was kind of all on him, and they've also got some nice surrounding pieces now for him to really step up and be the player that a lot of people thought that he could be in the playoffs. It is so fascinating because you write about Calgary that I think it's fair to say the biggest pressure falls on the players who've been there, whereas in Edmonton, they already made the coaching change. Holland's there long term, and it just seems like everybody's kind of like just expecting Edmonton not to do well anyways. But then in Toronto, would, would it be fair to say the biggest pressure falls on management slash Sheldon Keefe for the, for the Leafs, not so much the players, if they lose in the first round? I don't know. I don't think so. Like, I would say this, and I'm to be totally clear, like, I am no Leaf apologist. I don't think any team has been more impacted by the flat cap environment than the Leafs. The fact that their management group has been able to navigate around some of those challenges, like you think about the contracts that were signed before the pandemic, Matthews and Marner and, and Tavares to a certain extent, they were banking on the cap being around 90 million bucks this year. They would be a lot less of an issue. And the fact that mm -hmm. they've been able to surround this group of players with some talented pieces along the way, to, to find a Michael Bunting that you knew so well, so well from Sault Ste. Marie and to, you know, to bring in and, and find an Ilya Mikheyev and, and all these other guys along the way that have been really nice supporting pieces. Have there been mistakes? Of course. The Nazem Kadri trade, I think by all accounts, is not a winner. Um, 
you know, you, you, that was an emotional reaction to what happened in the playoffs. And there have been way more hits than misses, though, I would say, with Leafs management. And I think Sheldon Keefe has done a really nice job, all things considered. Like, I think it's easy to kind of forget last year and how disastrous that playoff run was. Like, to blow that series lead to that Montreal Canadiens team in a year in which you loaded up at the trade deadline because you felt like the path might have been pretty wide open for you to go on a deep run, at least to the conference final, and to have absolutely nothing to show for it, it would have been easy for this Leaf team to come out this season and just roll over and say, you know what, you know, you, the playoffs could have been in doubt. Like, I, 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 I truly saw that as a possible path from October on was like the Leafs just stumble out of the gate and never really get it together because of everything that happened. The wheels fell off. It was a proverbial 18 wheeler off a cliff last year. And so I think he did a nice job uh, having this team bounce back this year. And I would say regardless of what happens against the Tampa Bay lightning, I don't know that you make a move with management or coaching just to do it. If you feel like the process has failed, that's a different story, but I think by all accounts, you know, and what I've seen, it, it seems to be a pretty sound process. Frank Saravalli, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. Uh, so we heard from uh, Bruce Boudreau today in his news conference. Always always jovial, Bruce, uh, but no new contract extension done, even though it seems as though everything's going in the right direction. And It sounded even, kind of like I had presented it the last few weeks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even today, Bruce was almost talking as if he expects to – to be back for for training camp, even without the the contract ironed out, but that's, why wouldn't he? Yeah, like, it's going to happen. I don't see how it can happen right now. I, I guess I've the wonder is what's the holdup. I don't I don't understand the conversation. Like I, I, yeah. I understand your why you have to ask and why it became a thing. I just I don't I don't understand the 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 thought process to get from like A to Z on making, you know, that type of leap, not saying that you guys did or anyone else. It's just that I always viewed him as being interested in wanting to come back, given the success that he's had, given what he started to walk for maybe a, a different opportunity. Like, I don't, I don't know why you'd pop in for 57 games or whatever it ended up being just to end up walking. And I don't know why the Canucks with all the success that Boudreaux had, the, the interest in the market and fervor, and also his sheer winning record that you'd say we could find someone else better. I, I, I truly don't believe that person exists on the open market. So if it means spending a couple extra bucks, I think it's worth it at every turn. I mean, if you have the right guy, there's no salary cap for spending on staff and coaches. So, I mean, spend as much as you can. The question with a guy like Boudreaux, and it, it, to me, like the interesting thing here is, he, there's a mutual option for next season. So there's a number they've both agreed to, to ne for next year. So I wonder how much of the negotiations or the discussions come down to, do we tear up that next year and do a you know two or three year extension? Do we add a couple years on top of that? So as much as, yeah, uh, it, this should be pretty straightforward. And we start really looking into how these option deals work. There seems to be enough ground for negotiation that can drag things out a bit. Not to say he won't be back, but just there's enough stuff to go over here that it might take a few days to nail it all down. Yeah, and that's fair. I, I mean, I think the key probably is security. Like, yeah, no coach at any point wants to enter the final year of their deal without an extension. 
And that's essentially what Boudreaux would be doing if they picked up the option and did nothing else. It puts the coach in sort of an un, unenviable position. That's always been the thought process, at least. And we saw how many coaches were on expiring deals this year and how that became a topic of conversation as the season began to wound, wind down. So I would imagine um, you tear it up and you say, how can we find a way to make you feel wanted and comfortable? How can we send a message to our players that you're the guy? And how can we do this in an expedient manner so that this Get, stops getting talked about on Sportsnet Radio. <laughs> I mean, we're, we've got a whole offseason to talk about uh, contracts and stuff like that. But Boudreaux did say one thing interesting today. I know there's a couple of things, but um, he, he thinks this team is just a couple of tweaks away. Um, mm-hmm. we, we certainly wouldn't have thought that in December when he took over, but do you see the Canucks as a team that's a couple of tweaks away from being very dangerous in the Western Conference? I do. I mean, I... I picked the Canucks to be a playoff team this year. So um, I, I see it. Um, I really, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on some of the contracts that they have outstanding. So if you're subtracting players to then add, I think the equation becomes a little bit more difficult. And so that's going to be something to watch out for. But if you're adding to the base that that's already in place, that's really the failure of the Jim Benning era and tenure is not the, the core pieces that were assembled. Um, there's, I mean, there's a number of failures. Like there were some clear drafting misses. And when you've got Ole Ulevi, that's a big, big one that, you know, certainly is standing out and glaring on, on the resume. But the other guys that are there, like we, we've talked about how sound, the Canucks are at least positionally in terms of putting pillars in place from Demko to Hughes to Pedersen, um, you know, even some of the other guys that continue to blossom this year, a pot Colson, for instance, um, that you can see the path forward. The failure from the Benning era is that they were never properly surrounded. They were never properly supported. And so that's the, that's the real opportunity that exists with the Canucks. Um, and I think when you look at Jim Rutherford and his success in, in coming into Pittsburgh and finding those proper supporting pieces, that's really, it was the hallmark of his job there. And I think that's really what's missing here. So I view this offseason as an incredible opportunity to take that next step and really jump from, you know, why can't the Canucks be this year's, you know, next year's version of the Calgary Flames? go from not a playoff team to winning your division. That should be the site uh, that's set. And I see no reason why with the proper moves that they couldn't be in the conversation to do that come next season. Well, and a big way of getting there first has to, has to be taking care of business with with a couple of well three key guys with Besser, but at Besser as well, but really Horvat and JT Miller as well because they have UFA staring down the barrel in a couple of years. With how the season has gone, with Boudreaux his impact, now the season coming to an end, are the Canucks any more likely to be able to sign Miller and Horvat to extensions than they were say a few months ago? I think they are. I mean, I I would think that all the chatter that you heard, uh, you know, from or around JT Miller going back to November and December, you know, part of it, I think, was COVID. And I think the other part of it was just the lack of success. 
you know, you hear Mark Sifley and the comments that he made coming out of Winnipeg as they closed out their season yesterday, they raised an eyebrow because they were in a spot where he's saying like, I'm in, I have a chance to win and I want to know what this team is going to do for me. Not saying JT Miller would take that same path or approach, but more than the dollars, because I think the dollars are likely going to be the same anywhere, or at least really close that it's, do you have an opportunity to win when you sign that deal? And so that's, you know, that's the part of the equation that I would have to think has changed a little bit um, given where this team finished off the season. So, you know, do their chances of signing him go up? Why, I mean, why wouldn't they given what we saw? Yeah, it all just comes down to the number. And uh, I know you wrote a daily face-off. Maybe it starts with a nine. I mean, that's... that's I'm thinking it starts with a nine. That's pretty steep, man. I don't I don't know how the Canucks fit that into their cap their cap future. You find a way. Like, I, I truly believe that you move your ancillary pieces around the board because you need your difference makers. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot, but what part of JT Miller's game and what he did for the Canucks this year isn't worth that? 99 points. How do you go out and replace that? Yeah, you don't not, not easily at least Uh, Frank, we always appreciate the time, man. We'll talk next week. Thank you guys. Enjoy the start of the playoffs. Happy playoffs. Yes. Happy playoffs. There is uh, Frank Saravalli joining us here on Canuck central. Move the, uh, move the other pieces around. Keep the star players. If you can, then yes. I mean, if you are able to, then yes. And they were able to move Hamannick. Some mm-hmm. people thought if you can move, you know, and we all kind of thought, yeah, you can, you can probably trade Hamannick, but what are you taking back in return? Not only did they not take anything back money-wise, they also got a third-round pick out of it. So what else can you do? If they're able to move enough cap space, then maybe that becomes a viable option for you. But you got to move significant cap space for that to be an option for you outside of your core. Uh, so far in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, two games ongoing. Both currently are goalless. We'll keep you updated on what's happening around the NHL. Up next, we'll dive more into the Canucks and especially Brock Besser. It's Canucks Central on Sportsnet 650.